Welcome to the UNI podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Parada. UNI is a portal for art and conversation that propels unity consciousness, a state of being that is rooted in the awareness of you and I as one. Here, we explore unity through the people on this earth that are helping us understand ourselves, our planet, and each other through a unique lens. Our heartfelt mission is to help all beings everywhere come to the realization that we are all unique and unified at the same time. We are you and I. Okay, so, hi. Hi. Um, We're re-recording this episode because we recorded it a while ago last sometime last year mm-hmm. and I don't know what happened I think it was just like three hours long and it was taking too long to edit and we had some trouble with the sound but we're sharing it now and it's extra timely because we are hosting a retreat in Sayulita in Mexico this May and it's for future mothers or women who are interested in birth intended for women who are wanting to conceive women who are simply curious, women who are pregnant, women who potentially want to have children in the future. So this is not something that requires any sort of relationship or lifestyle to participate in. It's really something we've been wanting to encourage all women to consider attending because it's knowledge and wisdom of the woman's body of birth which is important for all of us to have and i love what you said about um this being something that was previously passed down through generation and generation but in modern culture it's been forgotten because we've replaced it with the hospital system for better or worse and we're going to talk about those nuances And yeah, so I would love for you to introduce yourself in a moment. I guess for me on my end, I just want to want to preface it with the relevancy of this conversation to everyone's feminine energy, because when we tap into this, um, this wisdom of physiological birth and of creation and how life is created and birthed on this planet, we can start to see synchronicities and codes and alignments that assist us in realizing how we create anything in life, whether that be a business, whether that be a partnership, a relationship, artwork, music. It's really applicable to all of life because this is is the seed of life as we relate to it as human beings. And it's something that can really activate uh, further knowings within us. And so I want to encourage people to join the conversation, even if they feel like an aversion to talking about motherhood or like birth is not relevant to them, because this is actually something that's so, so, so core to who we are. And as you always say, everyone was birthed, everyone was born, you know, so this is like quite possibly the most relevant thing other than death, right? As, as humans, something that we can just 100% relate on because we've all been through it. Um, so would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work? 
thanks for that introduction. Um, and I'm glad, like you said, that we're finally recording this because I know we've talked about it for a while. Um, but I'm Adriana. I'm a holistic birth coach and childbirth educator. Um, and I work with women throughout pregnancy, birth, postpartum, um, and I call myself a holistic birth coach. And what I mean by that is that I approach birth um, with the whole body, with the whole mind, body, and spirit of each unique woman that um, I work with. And so, um, you know, that means I view birth as more than just a physical event. I view it as a spiritual transformation and journey. Um, and my role entails a lot of education, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, but in the birth space, um, it's also like in, in labor, in the birth space, it's about being um, a space holder, uh, a guardian of the sacredness that bringing life into this world is. Let's talk about what physiological birth is, because that phrase is used in this community um, and it's increasing in popularity, but I want to get clear on how we're defining it. Physiological birth just refers to spontaneous labor where the full birth hormones are preserved. So it's how mother nature has set up birth to flow in the absence of intervention, management, disruption. Um, so it's essentially why humans are alive today. It's how mother nature has set up birth to work. If you were to be, if you were to know nothing about birth and you were by yourself in the woods giving birth to a baby, like what would be happening in your body? Like that's what we're calling physiological birth. Um, and it's like a very specific term for natural birth, right? But we don't call it just birth or just natural birth or normal birth because that term and like the words normal and natural one can be kind of triggering, but it's also like very clouded in society saying like you had a natural birth that has come to equate simply um, like a vaginal birth um, where that can include uh, drugs, it can include um, induction, it can include various interventions um, that disrupt that hormonal flow. And so it's not like a judgment on one thing being better than the other. It's simply like a distinct, like we distinguish it so that we can understand what we're talking about. Um, I you know, like the word natural, I always think of like, okay, you go into a grocery store and you're like buying something like orange juice, for example, and it says like natural. What does that mean? <laughs> you, it doesn't mean juice from an orange, you know, it, it depends on the manufacturer, the company that created that, what natural means to them. So because it has a bunch of different meanings, it means nothing. So it's the same thing with birth and natural birth, you know, so that's why um, it's important to make that distinction so that we have like the same language for what we're talking about. 
Um, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. I, and I love the simplicity of the example of if a woman was in the woods giving birth alone, like that is the process of physiological birth. It's uninterrupted. It's unmedicated, just completely left to left to nature and the body and um, mm -hmm. life and fate. Yeah. And like, mm -hmm. go ahead. Well, since we're talking about the distinction, can you talk about the distinction between um, or why you've chosen not to use the word doula and midwife? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I call myself a holistic birth coach, a birth keeper, um, and I've moved away from calling myself a doula because I, I see the role of a doula as working within the medical system. Um, and I am intentionally choosing to work outside of that system. Um, in the simplest terms, I think there are, when you look at birth from a physiological lens, um, that can't necessarily happen in a hospital setting. Um, and I don't agree with um, the role of a doula being walking women into a setting that is like falsely promising certain things. Um, and so it's just a personal choice that I've made to work outside of those parameters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way that I've, I've understood it is essentially it's like the words doula and midwife have been co-opted and um, oftentimes it sounds like it's something that's related to uh, physiological birth and sometimes it is but many times it's actually um, a quasi assistant who is kind of um, almost like habsies like one foot in the industrialized mm -hmm. hospital system and one foot in the um, more physiological birth perspective and so while it might, they might have more holistic um, inclinations, they're not charting the territory in a way that is fully empowered or fully empowering the woman that's giving birth. Um, and so I mm -hmm. think that's something that a lot of us don't always know, because sometimes we hear with the word midwife, we hear the word doula, and we just automatically assume that they're going to advocate for um, more freedom, more wildness, more rebellion from the forceful institutionalized process. Um, mm -hmm. But many times they are actually just kind of tiptoeing a little bit and like being ap apologetic and often not holding or communicating clear boundaries to the woman. Um, is, does, is that? Yeah, accurate? I think totally. 
yeah, and you mentioned just like the wildness of birth. And um, I think with that lens of, you know, how birth is meant to function um, without interruption, how we're, we're animals, we're mammals, you know, um, and birth is so much more than just a physical event that your body is doing, right? It's a emotional, spiritual, mental um, event. And to think that, you know, you need to like prepare for your birth and you need to hire a doula and like advocate for yourself and like in the moment where you're trying to like bring life into the world. And that's like a huge job to think that you would have to be remembering what your birth plan is and asking for certain things and declining others. And you're on this like timetable and, um, you know, strangers are coming in and out of the room and it's just like disrupting this whole flow. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, and that's the role of, of a doula, right? Is to be in that room and to advocate and to like do all of these things. Um, that just don't make sense. Yeah. Um, it, when you understand the physiology of birth and like, it's the complete opposite of what happens in the medical system. Yeah. And, and what you're describing is a hospital birth, right? In that scenario. Um, so you're saying that many doulas and midwives work within the hospital system at a hospital and that that already in is interrupting the the physiological process just from the get from just from like stepping even going to the hospital as soon as you're giving birth it's already interrupting it and so from what I gather mm -hmm. you see that already as not holding the integrity of physiological birth so you don't even put that step there you um work with women who are birthing outside of the hospital correct mm -hmm. and this is not the case for everyone this is just um uh, your position and the position of women who call themselves uh, birth keepers uh Birth keepers, um, you know, traditional midwives, you know, there's a distinction between being, you know, having a license, a midwife having a license, um, which is essentially um, working within the medical model of care, of treating birth like um, a medical event. Um, so, and, you know, that word, like you mentioned earlier, has been absorbed and co-opted by the medical system and so now women are making a distinction of being a traditional midwife the way midwifery used to work um a hundred years ago um and that's where the term birth keepers have come from fear of using the word midwife um and so yeah i understand how that can be slightly confusing it's confusing um, yeah it's confusing, um, but when, yeah, you understand how physiological birth works and the importance of it, um, I think it all starts to make sense and you start to see um, where the medical model doesn't support that. And um, 
then you see all of these stats of high cesarean rates or, um, you know, traumatic birth stories or, um, you know, that's where all of that starts to happen. And women are left thinking that their bodies don't work or something failed or, you know, their baby was in danger or, you know, like that's where all of these stories are formed when in reality, like a lot of what happens in the hospital um, is contrary to what is needed to support the way birth functions. And so when you start to try to manipulate things, when you start to like poke and prod and measure and put like a timeline on things and um, essentially you're creating a stressful environment for the woman. And when you start to do all of these things, you're starting to mess with mother nature's design. And then it's no wonder that you start to see um, things go wrong. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important to mention too, which is both part of our intention for the retreat and always, I, I think I know that both you and I have agreed on this point of view that it's whenever conversations like this take place, since it is so triggering for women, especially because we've been told, we've con we're constantly told who to be, what not to be, what to look like, what not to look like, what to do, what not to do in order to be perceived in a way that society deems acceptable for women. And so we're like fighting mm -hmm. that all the time. We're always on defense. We've been, we've suffered so much from that. And so when we have these conversations about quote unquote, natural birth, physiological birth, oftentimes women put their arms up and they put a guard up and a wall and it's because it starts to trigger all of this like um perceived judgment and perceived good bad better worse uh internally and so it's sometimes shut down but i think what we want to uh emphasize is that Having these conversations is super important. Discussing physiological birth in its highest potential is important because then you know the truth of what the body is capable of. And from there, you're able to create your own birth plan, your own opinions, your own decisions, which are not better or worse than another woman's decisions. Your health, your perspective on life, on the world is so nuanced and complex. And, um, special to you and so there's no way that someone could come in and tell you like oh you were wrong for choosing a hospital birth you were wrong for choosing um an epidural that you should have gone gone pure it's this like purest thing and that's not something that we're advocating for would we're advocating for knowing the truth of the woman's body put the woman's body's potential mm -hmm. so that you can use that as a bouncing block as a foundation um and it's up to you and um yeah otherwise we get into hiding this information and not talking about it because it's uncomfortable or not talking about it because we want to avoid um i don't know someone's feelings getting hurt you know and like that's that's faux compassion that's not real compassion real compassion is rooted in truth and then we from there we can accept what people choose for themselves yeah um yeah i think that's an important distinction um yeah to mention this talking about physiological birth and how the body works 
isn't a judgment on anyone's choice. You, you know, it's wonderful that you can choose to have an epidural, you can schedule a cesarean, you can have an induction. All of that is available. Um, you know, I just think where society fails is understanding the full spectrum of what's available. And when you don't understand the baseline, like you mentioned, what's true, how birth works, like how are you then able to choose what you want to choose when you don't have the full picture and you don't have all of the information and you're just blindly trusting that your doctor has your full interest in mind and like you know um and so it's important to i feel like this the term like informed choice or informed consent is like people talk about that all the time and like you can't truly have an informed choice if you don't understand what the truth is and then you know you choose what's right for you and that might be going into a hospital and that might look different for every single person. So, um, yeah, that's an important distinction. Yeah. And not to mention the obvious, which is like, this is spontaneous. Life is spontaneous. Life throws you curveballs. Like you can plan a specific type of birth and want it to go a certain type of way, but life happens and, you know, we have to flow with that and not be hard on ourselves for having to make you know, spur of the moment decisions based on what's going on, you know. But um, I want to move on to the something I, I kind of want to condense so that it's easier for people to digest. Um, in your opinion, what are three things that people may not know that are concerning uh, about the hospital system in terms of birth? Yeah. Yeah. Um so much <laughs> i know there's so many uh, so that's and, why i'm like what are the top three <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is just thinking about the fact that like without in the absence of understanding physiological birth like most women blindly put their trust in their doctor and their ob or maybe they have a midwife um and you would think that in today's society in 2023 in the united states that you would be able to trust that your doctor what they're saying and recommending is um backed by research backed by evidence like the standard of care and that's not necessarily the case like the way um the medical model approaches maternity care varies by country it varies by state it varies by city it varies by hospital by practice by each individual provider so you could go to one person and be told one thing another person be told another and that's not to say that it's individualized care for the woman it's just the fact that they're they don't you know there's no like standard of care um and the way certain providers practice is all based on liability and the risk they're willing to take or not take um, based on their license so it's not based on what's best for the specific woman in front of them um and that's the concerning piece to me um like for example one provider might be 
might quote unquote allow their patient to go to 41 weeks. You go to another provider and they say they do routine inductions at 40 weeks on the dot. Um, one provider might, again, allow a woman to eat in labor. Another provider might not. I want to clarify because I don't want people to mistake this as individualized care. Like you said, this doesn't imply like a flexibility within the system. This is saying that all no. people, all women at one hospital would be told that they have to do X, Y, Z. All women at another hospital, X, Y, Z. Correct. Yeah. Which is frightening. Is that that it's flexibility, but like woman to woman, like, which is what physiological birth is, is a, one woman is going to need this amount of time. Another woman's going to be this amount of time. One woman's going to want to eat during labor. Another woman might not want to eat during labor. You know, um, that one's just ridiculous to me. <laughs> I don't know if people know this, but some women or some hospitals don't allow women to eat during labor based on faux expired um, limited research, correct? Yeah, you get ice chips. You get ice chips to join um, when you're like doing the most amount of physical exertion that you might ever in your life. It's insane. Um, yeah. And so I do want to mention that, you know, all of this is concerning because um, our stats, you know, if you look at the research, you look at the United States specifically, we spend the most amount of money in the maternity care sector of hospitals. So when compared to other categories of like how hospitals make money, maternity care is the highest. So we're spending a lot of money as a country. And then when you look at how the US compares to other developed countries, we rank among the highest in infant mortality rate. That right there just shows you that this is an issue in the way that we're approaching birth. Um, you also look at the United States and you see that we have an over 30% of cesarean rate when it comes to birth, um, 30%. So that's saying that 30% of human females can't give birth. Like that just doesn't make sense. Um, and if you care about what <laughs> the World Health Organization has to say, if you care, they've stated that 15%, like this is a cesarean rate of 15%, um, is the number where the risks of surgery start to outweigh the benefits. So they've set that standard, if that means anything to you. That's 15%. The US is at 30. Some states, some cities are well over 30%. Um, that's insane. And a large part of, yeah, a large part of why that cesarean rate is so high is because of what people have come to call the cascade of intervention. Um, and the cascade of intervention is a term for the chain of reaction events that happen 
in the medical model that leads to surgery when birth is being managed. Um, and so it starts with an intervention. So when birth doesn't spontaneously start, um, so that can be, that can look a variety of different ways from. Can I have a question here? Um, because at this, at this stage, this is something I haven't quite clicked. Mm -hmm. So when women are given a due date, is that like, say your due date is February 22nd. Do you go to the hospital on February 22nd? And if you haven't gone into labor, they like induce your labor or no? Um, it can look like that. Yeah. So February 22nd would be 40 weeks. And then maybe your doctor is like, I'll give you till they call it like 40 plus five. So 40 weeks. So February 22nd plus five days. And, at, and if you haven't spontaneously gone into labor, then then we need to talk about an induction or maybe your provider is like, does it earlier, does lets you go until 41 weeks. They're quite literally managing it. And so they're telling you what you can and can't do based on what they perceive to be liability or risk that may or may not be. A risk to you you know they're defining that so that's kind of at the beginning of this cascade of interventions right because that is in and of itself placing a specific due date with a specific time frame of like you have to give birth between that's already throwing a wrench in the beautiful complex highly intelligent process of physiological birth mm -hmm. yeah and if you know your provider or, you know, if you have an OB or a licensed midwife and they've given you a specific date and you're approaching it and you're approaching it and like labor hasn't started and then you're, free, you know, you're stressing out, you're worried, you're in your head about, you know, what might happen um, when that day comes versus being in a state of surrender and, you know, just waiting for things to unfold. Um, yeah, no one really knows or has agreed upon what kickstarts labor spontaneously but for the most part you know people agree that it is it has to do with like a specific protein that the baby releases when and it signals that mm. they're um ready to live in the outside world um and so it's i love that it's something that the baby uh, mm -hmm. kickstarts um you know to signal let's do this um and so yeah so back to the intervention right it can look a lot of different ways and to your point like just stepping inside a medical facility is already intervening with that process if birth hasn't started spontaneously or maybe it has started spontaneously but you're still stepping into this environment that's an interference itself um you know talking to strangers being under bright lights not being allowed to eat potentially um that's going to put the woman into a stress response like on a cellular level um and you know just by those things of introducing yourself to strangers filling out paperwork trying to advocate for yourself that stress response is going to slow down labor um, your body is protecting you you know it's like coding the environment as if it 
you know, detect stress, then okay, then this environment isn't necessarily safe to release a baby. Like let's slow things down and wait to recalibrate things. Um, and if labor slow, quote unquote, slows down in a hospital setting, like you're on a timetable and they can't really have women laboring for like 20, 30, 40, 60 hours in their rooms. Um, and so they're going to jump to try to speed things up um, some way or another. And it might start, you know, it can look a lot of different ways, but when you look at the cascade of interventions, it most likely includes um, the drug Pitocin, which is synthetic oxytocin that your body naturally creates. And so Pitocin's what like will help speed things up. It's a constant drip and it goes straight to the bloodstream and it um, is synthetic. So it's a synthetic version of the natural hormone oxytocin that your body creates. Um, and the natural oxytocin that your body creates crosses the blood brain barrier. And so it also acts as a pain reliever in the body. But Pitocin is the synthetic form and it goes straight into your bloodstream and it doesn't cross that barrier. So it doesn't have that same effect. Um, it's constant, whereas oxytocin in the body is released in pulses and waves. So it comes, it goes, Pitocin's constant. So it's going to create stronger contractions that are closer and closer together. Um, and because it doesn't have that same um, fear-reducing, pain-relieving effect, it's going to be perceived as more painful. Um, so then that leads to the woman, rightfully so, asking for pain medication. And like pain medication, for the most part, is going to be an epidural. An epidural um, numbs the woman from the waist down. And once you have an epidural, even if you're not like totally fully numb, like maybe you still have some sensation, maybe you can move your legs, um, you are confined to the bed because you're a liability. If they've given you an epidural and you're like walking around, you might fall. So you're confined to the bed, you're given a catheter, you can't get up and use the restroom. Um, so it's harder for you to move around. Um, you're going to need help to move from side to side. Um, and as we know, movement, you know, it's just common sense is going to help um, labor. It's going to help the baby trying to move into your pelvis. Um, so it, that right there is going to um, most likely slow things down. Um, and then things have slowed down again in a hospital since you're on this timetable, they're constantly doing um, cervical checks. So they are checking your cervix to see how far you're open. And that's how they're measuring, like, have things slowed down or not. And once things have slowed down, they want to up the Pitocin, right, to, to, like, get things moving again. So then you get more Pitocin. And then more Pitocin, more epidural. Da -da -da -da. And, like, nurses are literally, like, in the nurse's station, like, looking at the monitors and, like, playing the balancing game of like how much Pitocin to give you then to up the epidural to like then to give you a cervical check how much time has passed to like they're literally managing this experience that they've 
started to intervene with. Um, in the hospital, it's also routine um, to be on constant uh, heart monitors. So it's routine for you, for them to do like to have a fetal heart rate monitor. So they're moderate, monitoring the um, baby's heart rate and they're monitoring your heart rate. And all side note here that since that technology has been introduced into um, the medical model, it hasn't improved any rate. It hasn't been proven to help any outcomes. It has only been shown to increase the cesarean rate. And this is all stuff you can look up. Um, it just leads to more surgery. But yet it's still a technology and a machine that's used. And so because they're monitoring the heart rate and the woman's heart rate and the Pitocin's constant, it's strong, what usually happens is then they start to see on the monitors that the fetal heart rate starts to drop. And the doctor comes in, they tell the woman that the baby's not tolerating labor well, they're having a hard time, their heart rate's dropping, they're really concerned. Um, if things don't speed along within the next couple hours, we're going to have to start talking about surgery. More stress, they come back later and you know, if a doctor is telling you that your baby is in danger, they're not sure how much longer they can tolerate these contractions, um, you know, that's going to then lead to surgery. And then the woman, the story in that narrative is one that, you know, thank God I was in the hospital. Like my baby wasn't tolerating labor. They had a hard time. Their heart rate was dropping and like I had to be rushed to the OR and thank God that um, they were there because they saved my baby. When in reality, all of those interventions and all of what they did to her is what caused the surgery in the first place. You know, and who knows what, what could have happened if she went into birth spontaneously or if none of those interventions were engaged with. I think more often than not, yeah. things would have looked really differently. And so, yeah, that's uh, an overview of the cascade of intervention. And obviously there's like a lot of nuance in there and it can look a lot of different ways, but I think that gives you a good idea as to what that can look like. And I think from looking at it from the physiological perspective, the opposite side of like, how are things supposed to happen in the absence of that? Like, um, uh, this woman, Sarah Buckley, she's an Australian doctor. She talks a lot about physiological birth and she has a lot of research on it. And she, um, talks about like three components to support the optimal hormonal flow. So how do you support physiological birth and what is needed? And she says that um, those three things are safety. So feeling of being safe, like on a cellular level. So no stressors in the environment, uh, darkness um, and privacy. So feeling of being undisturbed and those three things right there, safety, 
you know, in a, in that setting where you're around strangers or filling out paperwork, nurses are switching every four hours. Like does that cue the body true safety? Not necessarily darkness. You're in a clinical setting. There's bright lights. Um, doctors are doing cervical checks. They want to see what's happening. So, you know, you're not in darkness. Um, and privacy, a feeling of being unobserved. You're on a timetable and um, not private, <laughs> not in a private space there. So um, it's not the most conducive environment for the optimal flow of yeah. birth. To that note, I I mean, there's just so many things that you've told me that you've shared with me and explained to me that have just had, I've had these like light bulb moments and I know we can't get into everything because we're trying to have this not be five hours, but there's a couple that I just want you to just touch on the cord cutting and the cleaning off of the, the baby's skin. Um, those two interventions. Okay, I'll start with the cord. So the baby is connected to the placenta this entire time for those, you know, however many weeks they've been in your womb. They're receiving oxygen through the cord. Their lungs aren't working quite yet. So when they're born, um, you know, it, they're still receiving their oxygen through that cord as they're expanding their lungs, they're taking their first breaths um, and they're getting the transfer of wow. all of that blood that's in the placenta in their cord um, into their little bodies. And what is routine in hospitals is baby comes out, you cut the cord immediately and you're cutting their life force you're cutting their oxygen supply when they're trying to you know expand their lungs yeah when they're literally transition transitioning to life and then what happens is um yeah you're cutting off their blood supply you're cutting their oxygen prematurely and then perhaps then the baby is struggling to breathe and then they're taken over they're given oxygen in the little machine they're taking taken over to a warmer and they're being helped to breathe when all of that could, and, and that's very common. Um, and all of that could have been avoided if you just left the cord intact. Delayed cord clamping. There's a lot of research around it. And again, going back to every provider practices differently. Like if you just, if you are in a hospital setting and you know, you request delayed cord clamping, that means something different to every single provider. I think the standard is 30 seconds in a hospital. So if they're like, yeah, we do delayed cord clamping. And what that actually means is 30 seconds when um, there's a lot of research behind waiting until the cord is done pulsating for when all of the blood is transferred into the baby's body. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to make that distinction too of like, even if you are in the hospital, like you have to be extra specific as to what you're referring to when you're requesting delayed cord clamping. When a baby is born, they're born with um, 
like a coating on their body um, that's called vernix and that um, vernix has a lot of information in it it's you know protecting their body as they're transitioning to air um, it's keeping their body moisturized it also is you know when the baby is put on the mother's chest um, like from an olfactory perspective there's um, pheromones being exchanged and information about the baby's um, immune system and microbiome like that's being exchanged with the mother um, and it's essentially like a tool for communication between the two of them and that is essentially wiped off in a routine setting in a hospital a baby comes out and those like blankets that i swear haven't been like updated in years like the white blanket with like those stripes that i'm sure you've seen pictures of that rough blanket is taken and like rubbed all over the baby and all of that information is wiped away and then the baby is put on the mother's chest nice and clean because we are clean and we don't want to see blood and we just want to pretend that we're not animals that we're not mammals yeah and um i think even just with the last however long it was 30 minutes of a short 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 very very condensed explanation of all this one can very clearly start to see that there's a rhythm with physiological birth. It's that natural rhythm of the body. And when that rhythm is messed with, we create mm, yeah. distortion that then needs to be more messed with because then it's all wonky. It's been, it's been thrown off balance. The original pure song that was being sung yeah. is now like out of tune and everything's just um, wobbly. and so that in and of itself explains the benefit mm -hmm. of a physiological birth. And birth is so much more than just, you know, just the physical aspect of it. It's more than just understanding how the body works. That's just one portion of it. And, um, you know, from the medical perspective, um, it's treated just as a physical event that you can measure and manage it doesn't take into account the woman's mental and spiritual state all of what they're concerned with and like we've all heard all that matters is a healthy baby and a healthy um mother that's all that matters um and that explains that medical perspective i think so clearly and of course that matters right we want to survive and we want our babies to live um, of course, but like, is it all that matters? It's just negating how big of a transformation that is. Um, and only being concerned with a live outcome is such a disservice to the full immensity um, of birth. And it certainly doesn't take into consideration the, the spiritual component of, of that. And that mind body connection preparation side of birth, I think, um is so important and it's something that's often overlooked when you're trying to understand all of this education and information and you're trying to like learn all of these things and um figure out like what your birth preferences are and all this stuff and um the spiritual side of it i think is why i'm so excited to 
be hosting this retreat with you, um, you know, so that we can integrate that portion in our emotional bodies into the preparation of birth, of motherhood. Yeah, I feel like it was such a natural pairing when we decided to do this together, because the tools that I have learned, that I practice, that the modalities I've been trained in lend themselves so naturally to women who are preparing or thinking about birth or learning this information for the first time. Um, On this podcast, I never really talk too much about my work in terms of my offerings. So I want to give like a brief TLDR of what I've been studying. I believe I've talked about the Tibetan Buddhism mindfulness that I've that I've studied, but over mm-hmm. the last few years, I've really immersed myself in shamanic practices and studying core shamanism, both with a mentor of mine, but also just through different trainings and other teachers and workshops and books and my own practice. And I feel called to share that with people. And so part of the things that I'll be sharing at the retreat is dream work practice, shamanic journeying, and rose medicine. So I think something that would be helpful to describe is uh, the concept of core shamanism, which um, Mm -hmm. is essentially a a zoomed out view of shamanic practices around the entire globe. So when we look through the lens of core shamanism, we're identifying patterns within all of the shamanic peoples of all continents. And when we look through that lens, we find a lot of patterns and commonalities And it's beautiful because, you know, at least from what we know, these these peoples didn't have contact with them, right? The internet didn't exist. We, you know, we weren't traveling swiftly. However, we can observe all of these ancient tools and practices and modalities that seem to be core to the human species. And it's a beautiful practice, these practices, because we are all so connected to them, you know, through our ancestors and through our roots, no matter who we are, because because these practices have been found, you know, in different subtleties, different shapes or forms, but they've been found over and over again, time and time again, through all of these cultures. So uh, what are the things we consider here? Um, in core shamanism is uh, plant medicines, which is something that we'll be talking about the re- at the retreat. Um, we'll be working with rose medicine, um, the drum. So the sound, the instrument of the drum has been used across all continents to achieve altered states of consciousness. So we've found drums everywhere. And so when we use the drum, we're connecting to our ancestors. So I'm going to bring my drum to the retreat and we're going to practice something called shamanic journeying, which is essentially really uh, just tapping into your imagination and allowing your intuition, your more spiritual senses to gather information that is helpful for you in whatever stage of life that you're in. 
through messages from spirit guides, through messages from ancestors, through uh, visions and emotions, um, sounds that can assist us in our journey. We um, we'll be doing dream work. So again, in core shamanism, dream work is something that is seen um, throughout the ages, throughout different peoples. And dream work can be something really beautiful to integrate into this part of womanhood when you're kind of considering having children or you have children or you're, you're pregnant because we can very sovereignly access parts of us that are coming up to be healed or assistance with healing. We can connect with our future baby. Dream work is something that can be integrated into your, your daily life quite easily. So we'll talk about what that practice looks like. We'll do, um, we'll do shamanic journeying, which is also called active dream work too. So what I was previously talking about, sometimes that's talk, talked about as active dream work because it's essentially going into a lucid dream except you're you know you're not all the way sleeping you're you're awake and conscious so the rose medicine ceremony that we'll do um i work with rose spirit very closely it's one of the plants that has been the loudest for me in stepping into this relationship with plant consciousness um that is one of the plants that really stepped forward to me and really invited me to work with her. Even this type of language speaks to our bodies and our intuitions. When we start to speak to plants with, and speak of plants with reverence and with care and with this communal, like integrated type of relation, we start to feel what we know and we know that connection like our ancestors preserved that connection and in modern times we've we've fallen out of that connection with nature which is what you so clearly described with the hospital system versus physiological birth and that story is a common story we see that across all verticals you know birth is just mm -hmm. one of the many verticals we see that um, and relation with our food and our environment is another example, you know? And so bringing in that work with Rose into this retreat was something that I felt was just so, so natural and so needed because this is, this is all stuff that we can all take home and that we can all practice on our own. And that we all have access to, like these are our birthrights, um, and we live in a time where, we, when we are free to practice these things, you know, many of our ancestors were killed for practicing these things. Um, witches were were burned, you know, those were essentially herbalists who were burned because mm -hmm. of practicing these things. Um, you know, indigenous tribes were decimated over these very core parts of our being and so since we've lost all this we 
we have so much anxiety and depression and angst and existential dread and disease. And that's been my path towards it because I have just, for a majority of my life, felt so out of balance and depressed and lost and confused and in need of help and just not knowing what to do. And when I would go to a doctor, I would just get handed or offered antidepressants, which was not my path. I feel like I intuitively knew that was not going to fix my problem. What I'm getting at is that part of my healing journey has been in integrating and incorporating these mindsets and these tools and these practices. And I want to share them with people here at this retreat because I think that they can be woven in the, the fabric of this part of a woman's journey so seamlessly and they're so helpful in that process. Something you mentioned before is that we have in modern society removed the rites of passage. And so when we remove rites of passage, when we remove ceremony from all of these key turning points in our lives and we've removed community, there's this like discombobulated immaturity and a, a lostness that we feel, right? When we don't have people to look to, elders to ask, you know, um, ceremonies to welcome us into an, an ushering of a new phase, you know? What do we have? We have commercialized over-the-top weddings. We have, um, you know, baby showers where we play silly games, <laughs> corny little games, and everything's blue or pink. Like, it's yeah. just, you know, it's, and of course, like, if, you know, a wedding can be beautiful, a baby shower can be beautiful. And in a way, it's kind of holding down the fort right now because it's holding down, it's holding down a form of ceremony when we don't have any really. Um, so I'm not trying to like talk shit about those things, but I'm trying to paint the contrast of like, you know, when you look at different cultures, even to this day outside of the, of the United States, um, there's cultures that sing. You know, I remember you told me of a friend who I think was Greek. The friend mm, who, like, yeah. part of their ceremony was, it was for her wedding, right? It was for her wedding and part of, I think it was a bridal shower. Um, and a tradition there was to gather all of the women together um, and spend the day singing. And it was just singing whatever came up. For them in the moment, well wishes to the bride. Uh, yeah, and that's just so beautiful. That's something that's been preserved, right, as a form of a rite of passage, as a form of celebrating the ceremony um, versus what we see. Yeah, that has been lost in the States and in many other countries too. Um, yeah. And um, but I guess I mentioned that because it's been really lost here and, you know, at, mm -hmm. other countries have, have, you know, some, uh, semblance on that, like root, those like root practices, but we've really lost them here. And I also think that there's this 
um, misunderstanding too with shamanic practices where it can be this very like irony type of, of word. Um, and while I think it is, in my personal opinion, inappropriate to call yourself a shaman if you are not from a lineage or a tribe that has like ushered you in as such, um, I am a shamanic practitioner and I encourage all people to be shamanic practitioners, you know, even just for yourself, right? This doesn't mean you have to like do it for other people, but for yourself, you know, being a shamanic practitioner is essentially connecting to the land, connecting to the spirit realm, connecting to the magic that is um, the dream world um, and and our, our waking life as well. It's integrating the energetic, spiritual, intuitive side, that the feminine side that we all kind of forget about and don't treat, we don't treat it as equal to the masculine side, right? We we like books and we like universities and college educations and very lined up hierarchical careers and uh, doing and producing mm -hmm. and like instructions and predictability, um, which is why we have the hospital system now. You know, it was part of that, like prioritizing money, efficiency, um, control uh, yeah, predict and predictability. predictability. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the feminine is honoring the body. It's honoring nature's organic processes. And when we do that, we come back into nature's song. And so all of the work that I'll be guiding at the retreat is singing that song with people in the hopes that they'll join me. And then we all know the song and then we go off home and yeah. we have our songs and we sing those songs and those songs are then echoed in our communities. Yeah. Well, the beautiful explanation and, you know, in it's kind of like you mentioned, it can feel like not necessarily eye-rolly, but maybe just like hard to understand what you mean when you say shamanic practices. And we'll be learning about that, you know, but like the way I interpret it in its like simplest sense is just understanding how to connect back to ourselves, how to understand who we are, understand our feelings, um, understand our intuition, um, how to heal certain things that we might not even know were there, how to um, express ourselves, how to use our voice, how to ask for what we want, how to feel confident in that, you know, like in its simplest form, like that's how it manifests day to day, right? Doing this work is so that you can feel um, connected to yourself and feel in integrity and in tune with your intuition to live in alignment with the way you want to live your life. And how does that not relate to birth and preparing for that event and to you know enter into motherhood um with that knowledge you know it's uh, so connected yes it's it's uh yeah very intertwined um yeah. and it, and it it's part of what we're intending for this retreat is something we keep saying is 
bringing back the spirituality into the birth process because Mm -hmm. we've gotten into this routine rhythm of it being this like step-by-step thing and it's really so um such an intuitive sensitive um inward time and if we can prepare for the birth portal right this like time period of mm-hmm. inception to to birth um if we can prepare for that why wouldn't we you know and and mm-hmm. um something i loved that um i heard somebody say was that you know we think of conceiving as like that's week zero and then it's week one week mm-hmm. two three you know trimester one and when in actuality like our whole life is week zero right if if we end up deciding to go into motherhood your mental physical emotional spiritual health your entire life is going to affect positively and negatively or just affect your mm-hmm. baby and affect your your birth it's going to influence it it has everything to do with it i mean it's just what you are replicates right and we just like we kind of move forward and reproduce in these flows and if we can go into the flow with more feminine wisdom not just masculine knowledge we can perhaps start to create more balanced change in our lives and our communities you know and ultimately affecting the way that we build societies and the way that we interact with each other yeah and what you just mentioned made me think of when you mentioned the birth portal of, you know, it being this ultimate unknown, you know, and that can be a really hard thing to look at and accept of being in the state of not necessarily knowing what's going to happen, um, you know, and having all of these tools and these practices that you're going to be sharing like helps us trust in nature and have like develop a relationship with her, with ourselves, with our inner worlds to be okay sitting in that unknowing, right? And being able to surrender to whatever may come up and however it may unfold. And it's the complete opposite of wanting to control everything, thinking you can control everything, measuring it, you know, putting these guardrails around things because, you know, it's scary to give up control and acknowledge that, um, you know, we can't control everything. Yeah. And that's what these these practices assist us with is we go into the dark. Um, Mm -hmm. However, we go into the dark prepared or prepared and protected with the wisdom mm-hmm. that has been passed down through indigenous peoples over time. So that's part of what I'll be talking about is how 
how do we go into the darkness in these practices? How do we increase intuition and trust? And when we start to step into those waters, into what some people call the dark feminine, and by dark feminine, I don't mean shadow feminine. I mean the like the dark darkness of the womb, right? Of the womb of creation, mm-hmm. that darkness. Mm-hmm. When we go into those waters, when we go into that frequency, we start to get to know it. And so then it's not a stranger to us. And when we're in the birth portal, then we can have a sense of familiarity, even though it's obviously unique and special, but we have that familiarity. And I would also argue that this is something that is just going to be helpful throughout all of life for men and women Mm -hmm. too, you know, this is going into Mm -hmm. the darkness of the womb in an abstract sense is where healing happens. I mean, that's when we're willing to to look at our shadow. We're willing to look at our pain. We're willing to look at our trauma. And through looking at it and shining that light, we release it. But we can't shine that light if we're unwilling to look at it and go there. Um, So we'll talk about that more at the retreat. But I guess that's just to give a little bit of a, a, you know, high-level overview of, of, what that portion of the retreat will be, what the healing and integration portion will be. Yeah. And just how they're so woven together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, something we wanted to share too is a discount code for the retreat. It'll be UNI and that will get you $100 off. We have our webpage with all of the information on where we're going to be. It's going to be May 7th through 11th in Sayulita, Mexico, a beautiful space overlooking the ocean. Um, Yeah, it's going to be pretty awesome. And if you're curious and not sure if this is for you, we also have on on the booking link, we also have a Calendly link where you can book a a video call with myself and Adriana to ask your questions, to talk about your individual needs and wants, and see if it aligns with you. So you're welcome to do that as well.